Greetings, Questa, and welcome to the Meddlesome Meeples. Grab an ale, sheathe your axe, and join us fireside. Here's your host, Matt Williams, with Richard and Heather. Hello, and welcome to episode 16 of the Meddlesome Meeples. I'm Matt. I'm Richard. I'm Heather. Richard. Tell us what book you're going to be talking about this week. I'm going to be talking about a non-fiction one for once, which is Homo Deus by Yuval Noah Harari. Well done remembering that name. <laughs> Heather? Uh, we'll be looking at Robin Beck's new album and Phantom Five. Yes, Phantom Five, uh, the lead singer of which is Klaus Lessmann uh, from Bonfire. So that's going to be something that we're uh, going to be looking forward to discussing. Um, we'll also be answering a question that nobody has been asking ever mm-hmm. in Tiny Meeple's Big Talk, which is which are the worst comic book characters, not heroes or villains, just from a comic book, to work with in an office role, in, in an office environment? It gets pretty obscure and gross. <laughs> <laughs> pretty fast as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, no surprises there. <laughs> We've got a couple of uh, quest reports to look at as well, mm-hmm. one of which is above and below. Yep. And then the other one is Letters from Whitechapel. So, there we are. That's what we're going to be looking forward to on this week's episode. What else has everyone been up to? Well, my sister visited for a week, so that was nice. I mean, she came here and joined in with some games, so yeah. that was nice. So the week went pretty quick, really. It's um, Yeah, it's been nice. Other than that, um, been... Yeah, what, watching a few. What did I watch? Oh, I watched Spectre. I know everybody watched that ages ago, but I just found it on Netflix, so I, I like that. And um, been listening to the new Queens of the Stone Age album a lot whenever I'm in the car, so the car's been very loud. So. <laughs> <laughs> We've um, been. I've been playing on some more uh, Knights of the Old Republic. Yeah. Yes. And uh, I've been catching up on some. Well, not so much catching up as rereading some comic books. So, uh, well, I say comic books, graphic novels. Let's make it more mature. Graphic novels I've been reading. Well, they are some of the classy ones, aren't they? Yeah, so uh, Hush by the Batman uh, graphic novel. It's a great one. I finished uh, reading through that last night. Before that, I was reading uh, Avengers vs. X-Men. Okay, yeah. Not quite so classic, but, (laughs) you know, interesting. And, yeah, other than the normal work and everything, that's what I've been up to. (laughs) I've been looking after him. <laughs> yeah, the guy that's just burst in yeah. the side door. Say boo, yeah, baby. He's been doing oh, it all week. Well, that, that's what I've taught. <laughs> He's like, oh, you're not my supervisor, <laughs> mum. <laughs> I've taught the little one to say boo, yeah, baby. Heather's <laughs> been very productive, as you can tell. Yeah, and I went out with your sister on Wednesday. <laughs> oh yeah, you went to that yeah. cafe where it's got lots of cats. Yeah, uh, that was yeah, really like cute. Yeah, like a cat shelter cafe. Yeah. That sounded really amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. Mm. So that's good fun. And in fact. Uh, the cat from Red Dwarf's been in there before, hasn't he? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, no, I didn't know that. Oh, cool. That we is... didn't order food, so none of the cats wanted to kind of come round us. But it was still really cute. Actually, I didn't really think of that. Yeah, they would kind of congregate, wouldn't they? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, there we are. That's what we've been up to. We hope you've had a good uh, couple of weeks since we last spoke. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to the Quest Report, and today we're talking about Above and Below, which is a game by Red Raven, which we have the box of it up here. And this is quite a strange mix of a few different genres, basically, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's, it's really an interesting combination, because it, what it does is it takes uh, like a village development, resource management aspect of uh, like a Euro, mm-hmm. and smashes it together with storytelling. 
Yes. So it, more in line with something like Tales from of, of the Arabian Nights. Um, I, what this reminded me of quite a bit as well. Well, the adventure aspect of this reminded me of was like the choose your own adventure type books that we all used to love as kids. Yeah. And I'm yeah. assuming you all used to love it as kids. I used to love it as a kid. I assume everyone else did as well. Yeah. But... I had a Sonic one. That was weird. Yeah. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> yeah. But um, this is quite an interesting game. I've played this now several times with different groups of people. Mm-hmm. Every single one of them has loved it. Yeah. Um, and I think that's because there's something in here for everyone because it combines these different mechanisms. Mm. Now... This game is all about getting the victory points. That's where the traditional Euro aspects come into, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and uh, you build, you acquire those through the game uh, by getting new buildings for your village, by acquiring resources, uh, by going on adventures and gaining reputation. Yeah. And there's different, but basically each round, on your turn, you have one of six things that you can do. And you need to use a villager for most of these, don't you? One or more. Yeah, yeah. that's it, yeah. Uh, so you might use one of your villagers to go and harvest, to mm-hmm. get resources from your buildings. You might send them to buy a new building. You might send them to buy a new villager, a training action. You might send them to do some labour, and basically you exhaust that villager and you get a coin per villager. It's a bit like the work action on Firefly. Yeah, but the most interesting thing you can do with your villagers is send them off on an encounter. Yeah, that's um, the cool bit. That's the cool <laughs> bit. And you have to send at least two of them on on an encounter. And when you do that, you take what's called a cave card. Now, a cave card has a picture of a cave at the top, and it's got a picture of each of, uh, you know, different six-sided dice results, one through six. And next to each result is a page, or well, not a page number, but an encounter number. And you roll a d6 to see which one you get. You turn to that relevant encounter in the encounter book, and the, well, not you, but the player to your left, rather. It's quite important that the player <laughs> to your left will turn to that page number in the encounter book and read you an adventure. Yeah. So this cave card that you get—that's you exploring a cave that is under your village, basically. That's right. So you get that cave card and you put it under your buildings. So you have building cards up here, and then you go on an adventure is you exploring this cave. Yeah. And what happens in this encounter is basically what happens down that cave. Yeah. So that that's the fun bit, I think. And it might be that you know, you've know you gone into a cave, you meet somebody, something happens, and then you'll get options. And it, it could even be that something happens on the way to that cave uh, mm, that will affect be, yeah. it. And it might, and it'll give you a couple of options of things that you can do. Mm-hmm. And you may have to roll to see whether or not you're able to succeed in doing uh, the, that choice mm-hmm. or it might be that you've chosen this so you just go to another paragraph and read that to see yeah. what happens next sometimes there's a little chain of power you turn into mm. different pages because of the decisions you make and it makes up quite a nice little story it, it does and each um, each villager that you send will have a picture of what's called little lanterns a mm. little lantern on it with different dice results so it might be you know a two gives you one lantern for that villager uh, a six might give you three lanterns. Yeah. And it, that's how many successes you can get, how many lanterns you can yeah, get with that Yeah, is that, that called villager. Explore? Yeah. Or something? They're referred to as lanterns uh, with regards to what the villagers get, and in the book, when it refers to them, in the encounter book, it refers to them as Explore. So it'll be, you know, you're going to try and look for this treasure in this cave. You might get an Explore 3 result and an Explore 6 result, and those Explores yes. are how many lanterns you need to explore. Yeah, so if you manage to get three, it's like a success. 
but if you manage to get six, it's like a, a better success. success. Yeah, critical success. And someone will read you what your choices are and what you need to do for that choice, but and you choose. But then they won't tell you the bit in brackets next to that that tells you what the rewards or penalties are for each of those choices. Yeah, because you lose reputation yeah. sometimes. And sometimes you gain reputation. It's Heather a lovely little system. People. Yeah. <laughs> Which was not like Heather. No, not really. <laughs> it's been yeah, a bad I was surprised. <laughs> um, but also, if you completely fail, there might be a little bit of a paragraph that explains, you know, a little bit of story as to what happens. You know, you fail to do this and you just end up back at your village. Mm-hmm. Um, or it could be something worse. You could end up failing and injuring one of your villagers. But if you've succeeded, not only will you get a reward for something, but you'll also get to keep that cave card. And that then allows you to build something in that cave underneath your village. Yes. So it's very, very good. But this is the most fun part of the game for me. And I think also for everybody that I've played this with. Yeah, but if there wasn't this aspect of having your own village and you want to get resources for yeah. it and everything, I think I think that makes that better. Yeah. The, um, the exploring side of it is because you've got a village to go back to with the spoils yeah. that you've just got, it makes it a bit more fun. It's more like you are adventuring for something. Uh, one of the people that, funny enough, one of the uh, people that I played this with on one of my different sessions, he has never played board games before. And he's always thought board games were a bit, I think he thought they were a bit of a nerdy pastime. Mm. Um, but he played this and he absolutely loved it, but he kept comparing it to things like Skyrim. It was like when, when he was going off on an right. adventure, he was thinking about which choice to do. He was like, well, if this was Skyrim, I'd do this, so I'd do, I'll do that. You yeah. know? <laughs> it did remind me of Elder Scrolls in that you had the option to go on an adventure. Mm. That, that's what I do like about it, because you could just go to the tavern instead. But, you know. <laughs> but yeah, I wouldn't really keep referring to Skyrim. But I, I loved as well the little village cards that you get with this. And with that, it shows you at the top what your various actions are. So you don't have to think, oh, you know, what are those actions again? Because all of these pictures... Very, very clearly explain what's what. Um, your other option is you can, if you've got a good that you don't want, you could put it there and try and sell it. That's a free action to list something for sale, and it's a free action to buy it from somebody else. You don't need a villager for that. Um, you've also got the advancement track at the bottom, which you fill up with goods that you get typically from either harvesting them from your buildings or, which is what I've always done from your adventures things you find mm. on your adventures you, f- you fill up that track with and that gives you more income it gives you more income each round and at the end of the game it's worth points yeah so that's very good you've also got this uh, board here which just to explain at the top is where you put various villages that you, people can buy it's like a market deck for for people and that gets uh, sort of refilled at the end of each round you've got a round tracker there's seven rounds in the game so you just move the marker through the different caverns to show which round you're on. And there's also the reputation track. Now the reputation track, you all start in the same place. Your actions can end up losing you points at the end of the game if you've basically been robbing people and doing yeah. lots of illegal things. Or if you've uh, shown wisdom and bravery on your adventures, then you can get bonus points. And the player that comes first will get a bonus five points. Um, the player that comes in second will get points as well from that. Uh, the, I love the artwork on these. It's very cartoony, isn't it? But very cartoony. Bit, kind of abstract. It looks like kind of painting. 
when you've taken an, an action with an with your villagers though, whether it's sending them on a quest or build or whatever, whenever you use a villager afterwards, you typically will put them into this area of your board, which is the exhausted section, yep. the it's one with the moon. moon on it. And at the end of the round, you can refresh however many villagers that you've got beds for. Mm. So you start off with three beds and three villagers, and different buildings that you can buy allow you to have other beds. Um, and once you've got them, then at the end of that round, you can move them across and reuse your villagers. So you, you don't want to have yeah. loads of villagers and very little beds. That's what you had. On my last game, yeah. Usually that's the first time that's happened to me. All your villagers were asleep constantly. Yeah. <laughs> and some of them were injured. Yeah. Because you can, well. uh, when you're on an adventure, you can exert a villager which means that you, you, when afterwards he goes back to the injured section and not the exhausted section, but it does give you another success. And particularly in the last round, when you know you're not going to get a chance to refresh mm. them anyway, you're just exhausting your, uh, sorry, exerting your villagers left, right and centre yeah. to get you some extra rewards. <laughs> They're all just ill. Yeah. <laughs> but this, everybody that I've played it with has really enjoyed it. I think it's a really nice game. If it was just the adventuring like you said I don't think I'd have enjoyed it as much but I would have still enjoyed it yeah. if it was just the resource management part again I probably wouldn't have enjoyed it that much yeah it's both together it just makes it so much more it just adds so much each complements each other really well mm. Richard what's your final thoughts on this game this game for your games that have victory points I am normally not too keen on that aspect of them mm. because I like there to be something kind of a bit more intrinsic to mm. the game that decides whether you win or lose. But this one, because of the adventuring, because it, the journey is so fun, I don't mm. really mind. It's like I'm trying to build a good village and some things will give me victory points, but I don't really mind. Mm. I was just getting lots of beds for my villagers and resources and trying to get good villagers that could go on adventures and get me more resources. And I just mm. enjoyed that aspect of it. So... Um, I didn't. Um, yeah, the the victory point aspect of it didn't bother me as much as it might do in other games. So I I um I did really enjoy this, and I did kind of think about this might be one that I would like to get. The only mm. concern I had was how long it would take before you know most of the book. That was one of my concerns as well. But one mm. thing I have noticed is that when we play it you will find that as you go through these adventures you probably you may average one around because the mm. first round you're probably not going to use any of your villagers for mm. that because you're going to try and get some cards to give you bonuses and things in the early rounds yeah um, and then in the later rounds you're going to go on more and if you think maybe in the whole game you're probably going to go on by the time you've got more villagers and can do more than one adventure around in the later rounds yeah. that will probably balance out the earlier rounds where you didn't do it as much so you're going to probably average you know seven uh, adventures around yeah. and there's two there's a couple of hundred of these and uh 200 yeah 213 and it there are no 215 in the original book and i believe you can buy extra en another encounter book well, with that more does encounters. It then. Yeah, if you can get um, more encounters for it then that's fine. But if you think even in a, you know, say in a three player game, It'd seven encounters yeah, each, 21, 21 is you could have 10 games in theory without doubling up. Mm -hmm. In the three games I've played, uh two of them were three player, one of them was four player. I think there's only one encounter that's come up twice mm. and in neither case was it one that I had. Well, so I didn't that's not so know bad then. I yeah. would I, I think that it's a valid concern, 
but it's not a concern that I'm particularly worried about. I think if you played it more than that anyway, I mean, games become broken after a while. I think as well you could create your own adventures for this quite easily. Yeah. And I, I imagine that there probably already are online people who have uploaded their own little encounter books that you can get. In um, armors in every cave. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I'm not editing that out for you. <laughs> <laughs> so... I, I'm not too concerned about that. For me personally, everything is about in this game is about the encounter book. When yeah. I buy new buildings, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, how is this going to help me with encounters? Mm. I'm buying new villages and I'm thinking, how are these villages going to help me with my encounters? What options are they going to give me? Mm. So for me, it's all about that. I'm not so bothered about the rest of the village beyond that, other mm-hmm. than trying to get different things to do, give me points at the end. But most of my concern in this is how can I better adventure <laughs> and I love that aspect of that game I suppose if you were going to be going on an adventure you need to like have some kind of home life that you're leaving yeah. for that <laughs> amount of time and then going back to as well so yeah yeah the village aspect does does that really well I think so this is a game that personally I would highly recommend for everyone <laughs> I would go as far as to say that I would consider it an essential game in my collection because there's so many people I can play this with. Yeah. I say I've played this with people who play heavy Euros, medium uh, medium weight games, light games, gateway games, with people that have never played games before. Every single one has enjoyed it. Well, I think that says that just shows, shows yeah. just how good of a game it is. It's not a heavy game, it's a quick game. Uh, and it's a game that we were saying last time when we played it, you kind of finish and you want more rounds. Yeah. But I think not having those extra rounds is important because otherwise you would probably go through the encounters a bit too fast. Yeah, it's... and by that time you'd have so many villagers. The eighth round would take absolutely ages. I think, I think it's just the right length. Mm, I do too. Yeah. So this is one I'm highly recommending. It's Above and Below by Red Raven Games. Well, that was fun. Let's carry on with the show. The Meeple's Alive! And on this quest report, we're trying to catch the horrendous Jack the Ripper. Well, you were trying to catch him. I was trying to catch him, and indeed I did catch him. Yeah, I had different agendas during that game. (laughs) So, um, we're going to be talking on this episode about a game called Letters from Whitechapel. It's the revised edition from Fantasy Flight Games, uh, in which it's basically a one versus all game. Uh, you've got one player who is Jack the Ripper. <laughs> he his objective is to um, make make the killing and return to his secret lair. Yeah, and it's on several nights, isn't it? Yes, over four different nights, and this is uh, achieved by him using hidden movement. Meanwhile, a team of policemen, uh, one of which will be the lead investigator for a particular round, will attempt to track his movements and make the arrest in order to win. If they do that, they win the game. Mm. And Jack also has the restriction of 15 movements each night. Yeah, he's only allowed to move by 15 places. So we have a big map of Whitechapel. The police will be moving their little figures around to try and catch him. And Jack won't be on the board, 
but he will be writing down where he goes yeah. on on the little chart. And yeah, basically, if it gets to past 15 moves, you'd have well, to basically say... circle the whole of Whitechapel to do yeah. that. <laughs> we say 15. Uh, some of them, they can use coaches, for example, to make a double movement, move two points instead of one. Yeah. So it might not be 15 turns, because be if you turns, use yeah. the coach, that will... You'll be you'll move fifteen spaces, yeah, but it won't be means. fifteen turns. Yeah. Um, you've also got the option to use alleyways, haven't you? But I'll let mm. you explain that because you were Jack. Yes, yes, it was Jack. I had to decide when I was going to make the murder. When there would be these uh well, you say as Jack, around. I mean just in general, you have to decide. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we all have the choice of whether or not to do a murder. <laughs> but don't do a murder, eh? But yeah, we um we have to we drive we <clears throat> These little pawns will be moving along, and these are called wretched pawns, mm-hmm. or just the wretched in the rule book. And these are Jack's victims. Yeah, these are the, the possible victims. So, as the police are moving around, this is during the hell phase of the game, which is like the first of every night. It would be like the hell phase. And they would be wandering around. The police would be trying to kind of move around to be able to protect them, basically, because well, they know is, one of them's going to die. This is interesting, isn't it? Because mm. Jack has the option. He, Jack always goes first in the hell phase. Yeah. He's got the option to immediately strike yep. one of the wretched uh, down or to wait. If mm. he waits, the lead investigator can move some of those wretched tokens yeah. in the hopes of bringing them to uh, maybe closer to the uh, police, for example, or to bring them into a more organised way to make it easier to yeah. sort of cordon off that area to protect them and the longer so the longer jack waits to strike the more, the better position the police can get themselves into but alternatively the longer jack waits he can also see which of the patrols are reals and which real patrols and which of them are decoys yeah some of them are going to be fake but yeah there'll be seven on the board Two of them are fake, so he can if he if he can figure out which ones are fake, he's got a better chance of then getting away from the police, hasn't he? Yeah, well, I just found that um, sometimes, like some of the police would be too clumped together, or the mm. wretched would be too clumped together. So I wanted them to spread out a bit before I st- strike, and yeah, it's not just about getting away; it's also which one of these is he going to murder? Mm. Because like, if during the course of it, one of them becomes a bit isolated or wanders a bit near where my secret base is, <laughs> then that's going to be the one that's going to unfortunately die. So, yeah, you have to make the decision. It's up to Jack, really, when he strikes. And I found that bit of the game really interesting mm. because um, sometimes I thought I definitely have to just strike straight away because otherwise you guys are going to just corner me uh, because later on in the game there's less wretched to choose from. Uh, the start of the game is like five wandering around, isn't there? Because you so, lose one each round, don't you? <laughs> yeah. I mean, poor Jack. He <laughs> runs low on victims. <laughs> For, and who knows why? <laughs> yeah, so when one of them gets murdered, you basically remove it from the game completely. Mm. So you end up with less on, on other nights. The third night's interesting because he's got to strike mm. twice, but we can get to that later. But yeah, the movement of the game is interesting because when you strike, that is when Jack basically enters the board. Until that point, he wasn't even on the board. So, really, it's from that point when Jack's running away from the police. And that's the point where we know where he is, because we know he's been at this location yeah. to commit the crime. And the board is broken down into two types of zones, isn't it? There's the numbered areas, which are the numbers that the zones that Jack himself will move between. And 
in between those there are little black squares which are the crossings mm. that's where the police will be and if they'll move to a crossing and for example they've got the opportunity to do one of two things they can look for clues uh, to see if Jack on that night and only on that night has been uh, in one of those adjacent numbered locations mm. um, and they can find up to one clue yeah they if keep asking in... around yeah. don't they? and once they find one they have to stop yeah, for that particular patrol. Yeah. If there's another patrol uh, with Jason, he can also continue searching. But each um, each patrol can only find one clue. And it's just if that number appears on my list for that night, it can be where I am right now. Yeah, and that's no different. They would just say, they would just say the number, like they say thirteen, and I'll say yes, and that means oh, they think oh, he's been there, but like I'm standing right there. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you, uh, the other option is to try and make an arrest. So if you could uh, say right. Uh, I'm going to attempt to arrest this specific location. But if you do that, that's all you can do. You can't try and arrest. Unlike looking for clues where you can keep going around the locations around you until you find one, With when you make an arrest, you get to choose one location. It's a one shot. But if Jack's there, you've won the game. Matt was quite a vesty <laughs> for most of the game. <laughs> More than the others. I like the idea of arresting people, which is, I suppose, yeah. a, a worrying personality trait. <laughs> well, um, when you're the police, then it's a good way to go. Like, there's a killer on the loose. Yeah, I wanted to arrest Jack. So, in the later ones, there was a couple of times where I thought, I'm pretty sure you've either been in this location or mm. you are in this location. Um, and I think I tried to arrest, was it three times or something like that? Yeah. And on the yeah. third time, I got you. Yeah, you did. Yeah, my sister was. She was playing with us. She was the lead investigator on that one, and she kept trying to get you to search for clues instead of arresting sometimes. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Captain was like making a, a network of where the police would be, uh, so that like stop me getting through, and it did work really well. And because like most of you were looking for clues, but Matt was there like arresting random people in the middle <laughs> of what chapel. One of which turned out to be Jack. So there you go. Yeah, just a lot of other innocent people in prison. <laughs> <laughs> The, uh, one of the things that's interesting about this is that when you start as the police, you have no idea where Jack's space is going to be. Uh, you, but what you can do is, at the end of the first night, you can think, right, well, he's made this many movements from this space. So this means he could be within this particular part of the board. Mm -hmm. And then in subsequent nights, you can do the same thing again to think, well, he was gone from here to here. Is this many moves? And you can sort of mentally try and narrow down the, the possible locations. Yeah. And that's what we did in this. And by the time it got to the fourth night, we had a very, very good idea within sort of a couple of spaces as to where... You were one space your away. Base, yeah. Because yeah. it has to be the same base every night. So mm. that's why on the second night, I ran around everywhere. Yeah. And it, the second night, last that round lasted a long time because I went the wrong way on purpose and doubled back on myself to get back to my mm. base just to try and lead them off. And it worked for a while. But yeah, by the fourth night, you'd narrowed down where my base was. And... My base was at 52. Mm. Um, Matt guessed at the end that it was 54, which was just next to it. Mm. So, yeah. But that's how it should be, really. Yeah, and it was quite interesting. I mean, there, I will say, as when you're playing this, you, if your um, policeman ends up being on the other side of the board when the, the murder takes place, you initially go... I'm basically going to have to sit this one out. But that's not necessarily the case, because depending on where the base is, there can be plenty of time for you to get from where you are to where Jack's going. you think oh, yeah. Jack's going to be or where Jack's across, been. It? it moves around the board quite quickly. Mm. Um, there are times where you think, oh, I wish I could 
arrest after I've searched for clues. But the, that's the whole point. You've got to choose one or the other. And mm. if you've got a real strong hunch as to where Jack is, then you better make that arrest. Because <laughs> if you don't, unless you've got another player or another uh, patrolling right next to that spot as well, he's going to be gone by the time that you have another chance to arrest. Then get in a coach. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or zipping through an alleyway. Yeah. And it is... Generally speaking, it's quite exciting thinking, oh, we're on the trail, we're, mm. we're, we're, we're catching up to where Jack is. Uh, is Jack near me? And, you, and that thought of, when you know you are close, do I make that arrest or do I search for clues? But generally speaking, there's not a great deal to do as the police in this. No, you, uh, apart from teamwork. Apart from teamwork. Which is nice. Um, and it's nice to work with other players. I think if it was one versus all, but you were just... Because you could play this controlling with one per, player controlling all of the police. You just have to divide up the five police yeah. amongst how many there are. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so one person could control all five of those. But I think in that case, it would be lacking because you wouldn't have that feel of, um, right, we're all in this together. Let's no. let's find this guy and trying to work out between you know amongst yourselves what to do and how to divide... Yeah, it was quite good um, watching the discussions between you guys uh, for trying to decide where it was. And I tried not to give away anything if one of you had guessed very accurately. <laughs> it made me worried. <laughs> so there is that. I I do think that this is a very enjoyable game mm. that a lot of people would probably um, enjoy from that perspective. Yeah. And if you want, what, what do you think about the role as Jack? Um, I, I loved it because basically it was me versus all of you guys and I knew stuff you didn't know. <laughs> and that was very fun. But I do imagine I would like it as the police as well, though it could get quite frustrating sometimes. Because like on that first night, I think you guys only managed to get one clue, didn't you? Uh, and then I just declared that I was back at my base. Mm. Um, I would find that quite annoying. Um, but then the second night, you ended up getting quite a few clues. Mm. And you could have like proper discussions amongst yourselves about where you thought I would have gone. So I thought that was quite interesting. But yeah, as Jack, I thought it, once when you really know what you're doing, which I had spent quite a few days reading the rules. So that's why I chose to be Jack, because it does say that the, the one most familiar with the rules should be Jack. Mm. Um, I did love it, yeah, because I was able to formulate my own little plans and then just see if they worked. And I did a lot of trying to look at the wrong part of the board because I know you guys wouldn't wouldn't be being sneaky or anything but you can't help but just notice that if I'm looking at one side of the board more but than the rest but this is it you don't so, need to yeah. do that though because you've got the board on on your don't map need you've got to. your yeah. right here is what's called the jack screen I was and trying you've to look got at this. A, the map with all the locations on there as well so you you don't actually have to look at the board particularly as as jack other than registering where the police are yeah but i was having to yeah like i was having to note where mm. all the police were because i can't see that on my little board here no. um so basically i was trying to get a, a vague idea of what the numbers were here I, I would like look at where i was where i wanted to go try and memorize that number then look in the wrong place for a while <laughs> <laughs> and then double check on here and then like then write it down and um but yeah all that stuff was fun we yeah. only played the base game there are uh, different modules you can use within the base game, like there's certain cards that do different things, aren't, mm. aren't they? Um, and there is also the expansion, the uh, Dear Boss expansion, I think it's called. Which you've just got, yeah. Which I've, I've just got. And it um, 
it does add a few different things. I mean, the most, the first thing it does, which doesn't really affect the gameplay at all, is it replaces the little markers with different little miniatures. So you've got miniatures for the wretched. You've got these little black uh, colored jack markers. They just and then you've got them, yeah. yeah, which are only to track like they wrap the around and and, like that. and how many movements Jack's He's done. He's never on the board. No, and then you've got little coloured uh, policemen as well. So you've got red, yeah. yellow. Uh, brown, blue, green. They look like they're working harder than I imagined. Yeah. <laughs> they're like running and blowing a whistle <laughs> and trying to catch I think him. I might have to paint one up as uh, Sam Vimes. But yeah. the, um, they, they're they nicer than the original markers, but they don't change the gameplay at all. Mm. Um, the other, other things that it does is it adds different cards, uh, which will restrict, for example, there's cards that will restrict Jack's uh, ability to choose where his base is going to be, where... Um, I think where the murders are going to be are affected as well. Uh, there are ones that affect what ab- special abilities the coach, the alleyways he uses, yeah. or may stipulate that he uses one on a particular round. Yeah, it constrains things. A yeah, bit, and it just it. alters, and it um, it allows you as well to increase the difficulty because there's different. It, it brings in difficulty settings of one through four, uh, which again are, are more based on what Jack can do. This card's there for the police and also for the wretched, which is interesting. So yeah. it adds, in <laughs> some ways, it feels like it adds more historical information to the game. Well, because all a, those cards yeah. are all based on, for example, the Jack cards are based on actual suspects from the original investigation. Yeah. The wretched give you information on the various uh, victims of Jack the Ripper. Well, I think the nights that this is set on is actual nights when murders happen. It was, and yeah. There, there is a lot in the rule book. There's little like clippings mm. of... And it gives you information about different ones yeah. of the victims. So, yeah. And there are people that love, uh, you know, researching historical crimes, for example, mm. um, with podcasts that historic, uh, you know, cr- uh, true crimes and mm. all sorts of uh, yeah, it's interesting. podcasts are based around crime. And this, I think if you like that sort of thing, it's almost a must for you mm-hmm. because you'll, you'll be able to have a, this game, but you'll also be learning about the history of it as well. Uh, personally, I I'm interested in in those because I find investigations in themselves can be quite interesting. Mm-hmm. I've always liked crime novels and and films and everything. But as a game, this is quite enjoyable, and I think I can play it with a lot of people. Right. Yeah. I think the obvious comparison for me is to compare this to um, Fury of Dracula. Yeah. Which is another hidden movement game, which is again a one versus all. Um, where you're moving around the board without anyone seeing you and they're trying to catch you. In that, there's more things that you can do there because if they catch up to Dracula, Dracula can fight them and try and escape. Yeah. Uh, you can lay traps. The uh, the hunters can do, use different abilities and things. It's got things. combat in it as yeah, well. It's got a, yeah, it's got combat, which this game doesn't have. So that is definitely like a, a more in-depth version of this. Mm, yeah. Um, but it's not for everybody. No. Well, my sister was saying that it's also like Scotland Yard. She Apparently she played that with some of her friends back home. And that was a bit similar where you would write down movements. Mm. Yeah, so it's like a hidden movement game as well. So that's. I think this is another version. I think she said this one's a little bit more involved or mm. something. So There's quite a few hidden movement games. One of the mm. ones that... Uh, one of the other popular hidden movement games is Spectre Ops. And that again uses that kind of yes. system. Um, but this, as I say, I would recommend this one I think it's enjoyable it's a good price as well I would well. definitely recommend this yeah I think lots of people would find it fun and I think they might be surprised by how much they enjoy it I think it's quite interesting to I think once you'd 
got past like that first night and Jack had got back to his mm. base, you'd be like really wanting to get to the next night to try mm. and see if you can catch him this time. So yeah, and that is one of the things about it trying to work out where that base is, so mm. you can be in the right place to intercept him and things like that. So there is things to do in this game. Um, it doesn't feel like you're you're doing much in the sense of actions. But it's all about the deduction of trying to work out where Jack's been, where he's going to. It's all the thinking. It's all the thinking. Mm. So, this is Letters from Whitechapel from Fantasy Flight Games. Tiny Meeples Big Talk. Hello and welcome to this Tiny Meeples Big Talk, where we are answering yet another big question that literally nobody is asking. Really? Yeah, nobody. Well, I'm surprised because it's really going to affect people, with the answers to this. I mean, people will be thinking differently about their daily life. This is it. It is an important question. It's just not one that I think most people have uh, have thought before. Well, I suppose there have to be certain circumstances where it would be relevant, because like, not everybody works in an office. This is correct. So today, we are answering that question. Which are the worst comic book characters to work in an office or call centre? Right. And in my head, I'm kind of thinking more, not like a small office, but you're thinking of, you know, like a, a larger sort of business where maybe you've got like those cubicle type offices or I was thinking where a bit of people like that. are working together in a similar environment. It could be a call centre, mm. it could be telemarketing, it could be some other kind of business. Yeah, so I had a few thoughts about, well, things I've never worked in an office myself. Mm. So I've had to kind of imagine, first of all, what, what it, it would, would be, be like. like. <laughs> yeah. So that's basically the big flight of fancy that's in there. Are you affected by this? <laughs> not. Yeah. Can you imagine what it would feel yeah. like if you were? Yeah, so that's it. So I'm just kind of thinking if I was in an office, who would I not like to see working on the desk next to me? And uh, I think I just have to say before we start with any of these that, and I think this guy is going to be the worst in a lot of lists. I think the worst one for me to see would be Dog Welder. The same as... Funnily enough, yeah. I didn't write him down well, on because, my list. Because he was so bad in that other list that yeah. we did. And it's like, in there's my... a lot of a lot of different things that people could be doing in an office, but they're not welding dogs to people. <laughs> so. And man, he doesn't talk, he doesn't show his face, so that would be a very bad one to work with. But as I say, I don't, I don't know what it's so much like working in an office I mean from what I've seen on TV I just imagine it being there's lots of strange goings on and a, a mm. boss that keeps saying that's what she said all the time but then that's, <laughs> that's my, working that's, with me really isn't it? <laughs> yeah this podcast has given me an insight into that so um, but Matt has actually done a lot of research this week I and mean, it's basically been a montage of research hasn't it mm-hmm. like been in late nights in libraries blowing dust off books <laughs> and he, <laughs> he knows so much about this subject that I'm just going to well I'm just going to listen and really just react to what he's saying so <laughs> I mean there is a couple of uh, characters that aren't on my list that I did actually think of after I'd completed my list mm. one of them I, I wasn't going to mention actually that was Dogwilder, because that was from our worst heroes, to, worst comic book characters to live with. Yeah. Um, and any, I, I think he's probably one of the worst people in for any list. Yeah. <laughs> because you know, have, having someone that goes around welding dogs to people's faces is just not a nice person to be around in most situations. Well, my life is certainly different since you mentioned to me about Dogwilder. I did actually look look him <laughs> up, and it's just so funny. On I think it, on on the uh, the wikia. That's got his entry. And it's just like a list of his equipment, welding gear. <laughs> a list of weapons, docks. And it's just like, all the description. 
he wells dogs to people. <laughs> it's all. fairly self-explanatory. I mean, in many ways, yeah. his name states very clearly everything you need to know about him. <laughs> yeah. um, but moving on from uh, Dog Welder, uh, another DC character, Swamp Thing. Yeah, that would be pretty imagine, stinky. Imagine working in a confined office equipment, the air con's down, and there's Swamp Thing stinking the place out of vegetation. We watched Rotten a film vegetables. that him in, had him in the other day, and he was massive as well, <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> he'd take up most of the office, I think. Yeah. So I'm going to go through a lot of these kind of briefly, just to get your reaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second one uh, is a Marvel character, and I think this is probably the first one that most people will, will bring to mind, Jubilee from the X-Men. Jubilee, right. We know that she has pyrotechnic abilities, but she's generally very bad around equipment. Right, so So, that's the aspect. Yeah, just thinking, like, you imagine you've had a really long, hard day, you've been writing up that report that your boss has been on your case for, Mm -hmm. Um, you've just about got it finished, she comes past and accidentally blows up your computer. Yeah, see, I was thinking more of the actual um, powers. Mm. So I would think, like, like, in X-Men terms, like, Gambit might accidentally like touch something and it blows up a few seconds later he, like he's he, been on the copier. <laughs> yeah, but that would be deliberate if Gambit did that to you and that's a naughty Gambit. It is. Um, yeah, it but he is mischievous anyway. So. He, he is. And, yeah. you know, he's one of my favourite uh, comic book characters because I just really enjoyed his, his character in the comics and in the mm. cartoons that I used to watch as a kid. So, but yeah. it would be very deliberate with him. Jubilee would blow things up by accident. Yeah, so Jubilee just being basically a klutz. Yeah. That's more than her powers, it's just her personality. <laughs> Second one, and actually in some ways I'm expanding this to most characters with this power. Mm-hmm. Um, but just one specific example, Dr. Psycho. Okay. From the DC Universe. Mm-hmm. Now he's one of Wonder Woman's villains. Okay. He's a powerful telepath. He's got the power of mind control. He's yes. also harbours an intense hatred of women. Well, there's a human resources disaster right there, yeah. like with all of that. <laughs> so you just kind of think, you know, he'd just be a terrible person to his female co-workers. Yeah, he would. Um, you can imagine that he wouldn't help female customers. Mm-hmm. You can imagine him particularly using his mind control ability to force women to buy things that they don't really need or want mm-hmm. because he just hates women and needs to shift some product. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, and when the female boss comes from corporate, like, it'll just make her walk out the window or something, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's just not going to be a nice person to have in the office environment. And, no, you know. it'll just be a bad environment for everybody. Really, yeah. Another one, uh, from this time from Marvel, mm-hmm. uh, Dakin. Dakin. Okay. He is Wolverine's son. Right. And this is nothing to do with claws. This oh, is everything it? to do with the fact that he can use superhuman pheromones to manipulate other people's emotions. Right, so for the same reason, well... Very much similar there's a reasons. Few, yeah, there's a few people that those kind of powers would be very... For good. example, it's shown that he can use his um, his powers to make people afraid. Right. Imagine him sort of like trying to cow the workforce. Yeah, or if he's doing the PowerPoint presentation yeah. and he wants you all to react. <laughs> yeah. Also, in a weird way, he can uh, cause sexual arousal by using these pheromones. <laughs> Again, HR. Just, HR. Yeah. And I just imagine him as kind of being like the office creep. You yeah, know, hanging around the be. water cooler, hitting on people, <laughs> and they're powerless to refuse his advances. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, don't be in an office environment with him. Uh, going over back to DC Comics now, uh, the Clock King. Are you Clock familiar King. with this character? No. He's one of Batman's villains. Right. He has no powers, but he can sense patterns 
and the, on the, the temporal plane. Um, he's got <laughs> an ability. Sounds like a power. <laughs> he's got the ability to basically perceive and manage time to a superhuman degree. Ah. For example, in fights, no one can land a, a hit on him because he can. He knows exactly the amount of time it right. takes for an enemy to punch him or kick him or something. Okay. So he just dodges out of the way in time every time. So do you think he would just be like over punctual and really annoying? I can no. imagine him being the worst supervisor ever. Yeah. Because he'd be like, <laughs> oh, you watching. know, this report could have been done five seconds ago. Where have you been wasting your time and just yeah. being on your case or all he could, the time? Could tell that you're not going to be able to do the report on time, even. Before you started yeah, it, because you because you've been looking about, and yeah, checking your it. Facebook and status, and perhaps <laughs> yeah. you know watching a medicine meeples video. There's ah, so many yeah. things that you could be doing to waste a bit of work time. Mm. So there we are. The Clark King would be a terrible supervisor. He would be, yeah, and employee, I think. Next one, we're going back to the X Men again. Yeah, a lot of them would be terrible in an office. <laughs> <laughs> Pick a, which X Men do you think is going to be next on my list? Um. Well, oh the. I was thinking of like Wolverine just for his feralness, basically. I mean, it, it, was, it was okay as a limo driver in, mm. in Logan, but he didn't react incredibly well to when people were slightly rude to him. So I imagine him like in the complaints department or something. <laughs> I imagine that being a disaster. But yeah, there was... Being something. pulled up for calling somebody Bub 10 in a row. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that, would be, that would be on an easy day for him. I think I would much rather work with Wolverine than this next guy I've got on my list yeah, from the X-Men. Who's that? This is Maggot. Maggot. A, uh... a mutant called Maggot. Yeah. Now, the reason he's on my list... He has a hollow digestive cavity, mm-hmm. basically, and that houses a pair of semi-sentient slugs. One's Man. called Eenie, the other one's called... Meanie. Meanie. Okay. <laughs> What's Marnie and Moe? That's the <laughs> <laughs> No one asks about Marnie and Moe, or you do go to HR. <laughs> but these semi-sentient slugs bore their way out of his torso, right? Yeah. And they use an enzyme to digest, basically, anything that's in front of them. So just imagine you sat there, it's lunchtime, you, you've got a disappointing ham sal- salad in front of you. Or, <laughs> yeah. And let's face it, I mean, when is a, a ham salad or sandwich anything other than disappointing? It's got the word salad in it. So. Yeah, and the word ham. I'm not, <laughs> actually, when it comes to ham, I'm with the vegetarians. It's not um, a to lose, <laughs> But they come out and they digest things at super speed. So oh, you're right. sat there, this guy's in front of you. He's got his, you know, couscous or whatever in front of him on the table. <laughs> yeah. And all of a sudden, these two slugs burst out of his stomach, giant yeah. slugs, go through his uh, meal at super speed. And bearing in mind that they can probably um, they go through anything, mm-hmm. they go through his uh, tray, they go through the table. It's destructive. It's, like it's disgusting. Yeah. I mean, I, I, don't, I support his right to have these slugs. No questions asked. But I know it's going to put me off my food. And if it's yeah. a disappointing ham sandwich in front of me, I'm already not going to be that inclined to eat it. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there we are. Maggot. As as, yeah, he would have to go home for his lunch, wouldn't he, really? Yeah, but he, he doesn't. That's the thing. He doesn't. He just does it in public because <laughs> he's got his right. And if you complain about it, he he complains to HR that you're, you know, repressing his right as a mutant. I always did think that some of the X-Men, they can't all have amazing powers. Some of them must have just something that is a real bind or is kind of gross. <laughs> and uh, that kind of... That kind of proves it. Well, he was briefly an X-Men, and if memory serves, he he tended to eat alone a lot. (laughs) Well, as long as he did... Well, yeah, 
his rights. Yeah, another HR thing. You can't expect him to just leave just because he's disgusting. Now, the next one is on a similar vein, but this is a DC character. Mm-hmm. This guy's called Matarita Lad. Matarita Lad. Yep. That's a great name. <laughs> uh, he will eat anything and everything, and he doesn't need sentient slugs to do it. As long as it's matter, I suppose. Yeah. Which... But he will eat glass, he'll eat lava, mm. anything. I mean, at one point, he literally ate his way to freedom. <laughs> when him oh, and his yeah. team were in prison and he yeah. tunnelled through <laughs> just by just eating, eating everything. <laughs> right. Um, no, but just that imagine, just you're there, you're trying to get your work done. It's been a long day. You reach out for your stapler and it's gone because Matarita lad got snackish and he's mm-hmm. been through and he's at all your stationery. Yeah, that would be pretty terrible. On that kind of vein, I mean, I, was talk- I wasn't thinking of ones that are quite... A- as obscure as you, I was just thinking of some of the well-known ones, mm. which would be uh, a bit awful to work with. And I was thinking of Magneto for those similar lines because, yeah. like, where's all the metal? Actually, where's all the paper some clips? Ways, that'd be really something? useful though, because you'd yeah. be like, "Oh, I need a paper clip." Oh, I know, there'll be there'll be you know swirling Stop around <laughs> Magneto <laughs> while he hovers in his office. Yeah, that kind of thing. Also, it would be kind of terrifying if it's the Michael Fassbender version because. Just, he just seems scary in those. <laughs> I mean, I know technically the um, the Ian, Ian McKellen, McKellen one is pretty bad as well, but I don't know what it is about him. <laughs> so I would just imagine like paper clips and staplers just floating out of my office if he needs them, and that becomming very annoying. Yeah. Uh, right. This is another DC character, and I think most of my remaining ones, bar one, are. Mm-hmm. Um, this is Mister Nobody from the Doom Patrol. <laughs> Mr. Nobody. Yeah, and his power is that he slowly drains the sanity of people he's around. Well, that's just any boss. I was going to say, most people would argue that every office already has somebody like that. (laughs) Yeah, they do. He's actually got the the certificate to prove it. (laughs) Yeah, alright, so if you know that that's going to be the case, then basically don't recruit him and put him in cubicles around other people. You know, as we say, every office probably already has somebody like that, and if you're thinking, well, my office doesn't, well, it's probably you. (laughs) <laughs> oh no! <laughs> the next one, okay. This is a guy called Arm Falloff Boy. <laughs> this is <laughs> great. <laughs> another DC character. His real name is Floyd Belkin. Right, Arm He's Falloff. A... So, like, does his arm fall off? Not Arms. just his arm. Is is uh, from the 30th century, and basically he detaches his limbs uh, so that he can then use them as a blunt weapon. <laughs> okay, so, so he'll like take his own arm off and beat you over the head with it, sort of thing. Is that better than just carrying a weapon or I suppose <laughs> no no it's not <laughs> oh, right, okay <laughs> but the thing I was thinking here is what if this guy takes it into his head to liven the office up it's a bit of a prankster so, so he just... goes he goes right you, you're there you're trying to get your work done you you know you you rush you've got a schedule you open up a drawer to to get a new pen or something and there's just, like, just a <laughs> 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 no. and arm just flies out and strangles you <laughs> or, or you go to, you go at lunchtime you're hungry you've been working hard you go to get your lunchbox you open up your lunchbox your food's missing and there's just a hand in there <laughs> yeah or even if he just leaves his hand on your disappointing ham salad I mean that's again like the like maggot that's just going to make you not want to have it that's right. It's just not going to be a nice experience working with Arm Fall Off Boy. And this is <laughs> another one of DC's more useless and gross characters. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm, that. I'm quite impressed with the amount of these type of characters DC have got. Mm. That takes us on to our next one. Red B. Red B. Real name, okay. Richard Raleigh. Right. He has no powers. 
He has no skills. What is it with DC and no He powers? has bees. <laughs> he has bees. He has, in his so belt... into apiary. He has a... Yeah, his weapon is that he has trained bees in his belt. Right. <laughs> now, you may think, well, that's not... How is that going to affect me at work? Well, just imagine that there's someone in your office that's allergic to bees. Yeah... Basic, yeah, that would just be a hazard. Wouldn't or it? he takes them out every now and then to air. You've got bees flying around. The buzzing's annoying you. His, his belt's gone, so his pants are falling down. <laughs> HR turn, are coming yeah. around to tell him how many times have we have told you not to bring those bees in? Mm. Please put some pants on. Yeah, yeah, put your pants back on as well. <laughs> so there's there's genuine reasons for concern with uh, red bee. Or they or bees just come in to steal your stapler or something. Like if he needs it, then a swarm of bees just descends on your desk, and then there's like less stuff when they leave. <laughs> and you're not going to argue with the swarm, are you? No, no. You, well, you wouldn't know which bee to argue with first. <laughs> so we're going to go on to um, the last Marvel character now, mm-hmm. Zeitgeist. Okay. Zeitgeist. Or real name Axel Clooney. Mm-hmm. Now he spits acid. Right. He, right. He's got this cavity in his mouth, which creates this acid that, and it's yeah. just oozing into his mouth, so he he can drool with it and etc. Mm-hmm. And I was just thinking how dangerous he would be if he had a cold. You know, because yes. normally the worst thing that happens if someone comes into work with a cold is you try and keep your distance, and yeah. you've got you, they may sneeze on you. Saying, but with this guy, if he right sneezes now. on you, you've got You're acid in your die. face or on your yeah. arm. It's not. It's not nice for a work environment. And some workplaces are a bit strict with sick days. Mm. And you would really want him to not use up all his sick days because then he'll have a little bit of a sniffle and he'll come in anyway. He'll try to brave it. Uh, A lot of the time, companies encourage that kind of thing. But it could be deadly with him. It really could. It's not a good environment to be in when someone could sneeze acid all over you at any moment. (laughs) And that is really going to interfere with your work habits. I mean, how, how can you really focus on, you know, dealing with some complaining customer when you know that at any point someone could sneeze your arm off. Yeah, so Zeitgeist is there going, ah, ah. <laughs> Everyone ducks, everyone's down. You know, yeah. there we are. Mm. Uh, and you can't even make the guy wear a helmet to cover this because as soon as he's had his first sneeze, the next one's going to get you. Yeah. It it's is. just unpredictable. Speaking of un- unpredictability, the last hero on my list, mm-hmm. uh, and again a DC character, yeah. the Infectious Lass. A <laughs> real name draw a sept. She's again. A- yeah. She's an alien hero right. uh, from the planet Somatar. Um, now her body, like the rest of her species, is home to thousands of infectious diseases. Uh, <laughs> She's got Mr. Burn syndrome. <laughs> yeah, a body. The body of these aliens uh, are home to colonies of microorganisms. Mm-hmm. Um, now they are immune to those diseases themselves, but they carry those diseases within them and can infect other people. Right. right. She's a carrier of everything. So she has a certain amount of control over this. Um, but she can't fully control it, as has been shown that she's accidentally infected other heroes before. That's even worse. She's probably done as much harm in her career as a hero as she has good by the amount of diseases she's accidentally infected people. Like, even if she can fight crime, she should just stay in. (laughs) There are other other heroes to fight crime. (laughs) (laughs) So, who aren't going to infect you with something terrible and... Uh, <laughs> some sort of horrific alien disease. Yeah, if you pick the name Infectious Lass, <laughs> it just sounds terrible. Well, I mean, she's a nice girl. It's not her fault that she's going to give you an infection. No. You've... Okay, <laughs> I'm not going to say anything about that. <laughs> so many jokes Richard's not making right now. 
Yeah, just be thankful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's your that's a, that's a pretty good list. I mean, there's some very obscure ones. But I feel like I've learnt a lot here. Um, I think another very bad one would be Deadpool, because imagine him being in the next cubicle alone. It would be very hard to get any work done, wouldn't it? And he wouldn't do any work unless it's funny. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> if there was some work he wasn't supposed to be doing, then he would do it. He would, like, stay up all night doing that work. But that's how the, that's how you'd get him to do your work, wouldn't you? You'd go, <laughs> yeah. you'd go around, Deadpool, you better not write re- that report that I need to do and get ready for tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're going to be in so much trouble if you do my report. Yeah. If I find my report on my desk in the morning... <laughs> Plus, if he's in a, com- a cubicle, he will break the fourth wall. And if he goes in there with a the unicorn, leave him alone. <laughs> yeah, leave him alone. That's all we can say. <laughs> yeah. So, this is my list of worst characters to work with in any kind of office environment. I'd be, I'd li- very much like to know what you think and who you would least like to work with. Do you know any more obscure than the ones that Matt has done? <laughs> like, any more obscure than Arm Fall Off Boy? We'll use that as, like, the benchmark. That's the benchmark yeah. for the obscure <laughs> characters. Please, I'd love to hear more about these kind of characters. Um, if there's any more mainstream characters, because my list, apart from Jubilee is, and Dakin, is probably fairly obscure. Mm. Um, but if you've got some more popular ones, throw them at us as well. Basically, what are your thoughts? Tell us those thoughts. And you can... <laughs> it's imperative that you do for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> Drop by and see us on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram and just share some thoughts with us. In the meantime, stay meddlesome. And be careful. If you get an office job and you see any of these people, it's probably best to move on. Yeah, just work on your resume. Tell us what you think in the comment section below. The Meddlesome Meeples present music news and reviews in conjunction with Paradise Rock UK. Hi everyone, welcome to the Bard's Corner. Um, to start off with, we've got a lot of tour dates to get through. So, Yeah, we're not going to go through each of these individually, but what we will say is that these are all on paradiserock.co.uk. If you go to there and check out the tour section from the uh, top menu, you'll see the article that's got all these tour dates in it. But just to highlight uh, who these are for... Uh, we've got tour dates for Vegas starting from the 21st of September through to the 21st of October. We've got dates for Martina Edoff uh, ranging from the 6th of October to the 10th of October. We've got dates for Bigfoot starting on the 14th of November through to the 25th of uh, November. Those last few dates being as um, a, a tour with Taiketo. Cool. We've got a couple of dates for Shiraz Lane in October. We've got a Air Race Lionheart uh, co-headline tour um, dating from the well the first date is the 22nd of October but that's at Nottingham's Rockingham Festival and that's just going to be air race the dates with Lionheart start from the 30th of November and run to the 6th of December They've, we've got dates for Heat uh, yeah. they've got a European tour and a UK tour now the European leg of that tour will start on the 30th of October and the UK dates will start from the Friday the 17th of November. Mm. There's uh, just the four dates at the end of that tour, running from the 17th to the 21st, which will be at the UK. Mm. We've also got Black Star Riders and Dirty Thrills dates for those. That's going to be ranging from the 8th of November through to the 19th of November. We've got dates for the Tubes from the 4th of November to the 17th of November. Now, the interesting thing about those is that from the 11th of November to the 17th of November, the dates on there are as support acts to Alice Cooper. 
Oh, cool. So that's going to be good. Good to see him again. Yeah, he's a very good live performer. Uh, Taiketo from the 10th of, ele- of November to the 26th of November. We've got a number of dates for those. Mr. Big. Now, Mr. Big have got a tour coming up. That's going to be supported by The Answer and Faster Pussycat. Now, that starts off on the 16th of November at Nottingham Rock City. And that's going to run through to the 23rd of November at Wolverhampton. Uh, we've got dates for the Grey and Bonnet Band. That's supported by the Brink and the Kings of Broadway. Mm-hmm. That's going to be from the 18th of November through to the 30th of November. Uh, we've got dates for Gun and Dirty Thrills for December. We've got dates for Mason Hill for December. We've got dates for Night Ranger. A couple of UK dates. Now, the first of those dates, which is in March, that's going to be at Hard Rock Hell AOR 6. So that's part of a festival lineup. But they've also got a, a gig in London. Yep. Uh, we've got dates for Yes in March. We spoke about that previously. That's their anniversary tour. We've got Jethro Tull for April. And we've got dates for Marillion in April. So there's lots and lots of tour dates that you can look through and that ranges quite a way ahead. So plenty of time to start planning to get to those gigs. Well done. <laughs> yeah, I'm quite proud of myself for going through all that. Did you breathe? <laughs> I, bre- I breathed slightly. I did breathe slightly. So it's a good time of year for rock, isn't it? It is a good time of yeah. year for rock. So it's uh, plenty of dates coming up. So as we say, go check out those dates, see where they're coming to, and let us know, know if you go to any of those gigs. Right, so now we're going to be looking at a couple of albums. Yeah. Um, we're going to be looking at Love Is Coming, which is a new album by Robin Beck, and Play To Win, which is a new album by Phantom Five. Good albums. Both very good albums. Yeah. Now... Um, I've been listening to Love Is Coming a fair bit, and I've really enjoyed that. Mm, I have, um, yeah. The first two songs on there, which was Island and On the Bright Side, really get off the album with a quite a happy, upbeat, melodic rock feel-good factor to it, which mm. is something Robin Beck does mm. very well. Um, then there's tracks like In These Eyes, which is my favourite ballad on the album. It's got real yeah, sort of powerful yeah. emotional drive uh, behind it, and there's a brilliant pairing there between Robin Beck's vocals and the keyboards. Mm. Um, the main, the album's title track, Love Is Coming, is probably the heaviest track on that album there, but it's got a, a really good rhythm, rhythm to it. It's got a cracking chorus, and it's a definite highlight for me. Um, then you go, this song's on there like Lost, which take you back to melodic rock territory. Um, but the album's got quite a lot of different styles mm. throughout the album. So there's songs like uh, Crave The Touch, which has got a good rhythmic tempo. Mm. Songs like uh, If You Only Knew, which really doesn't sound like rock it sounds more soul than it does anything else she does else. a lot a very good range of different kind of i was gonna say types of music if that's the right term styles I styles think is what that's you're looking it for. Yeah. yeah she's there's a lot of different styles on this album and they all sound mm. good um there's a, my favorite song on there it's probably a song called girl like me um which contains all the trademarks you mm. associate with a, a robin beck song it's got a uh, Robin's smooth vocals, it's got really up-tempo beat, it's got some really good guitar solos. Um, I best way to dis- describe that is a, a song that kicks ass and drips sass. Oh, that's weird. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I've heard it before, but coming out of you, that yeah. sounds really weird. <laughs> it kicks ass and drips sass, much like Robin Beck herself. <laughs> um, so that song starts off with a really good solo. Yeah. Um, and I'd say you probably see more of Robin's vocal range on there than you do on any other song on the album as well. Yeah. Uh, the last song on the album is a song called Warrior. Now, that's a very relaxed song, mm. almost pop-like. You know, like there's one song that's yeah. more soul. This is more pop, 
than it is rock but it's just a really re- relaxed song and it's mm. if you listen to the the vocals and the lyrics on it it's uh, got it's a very confident song it's a very self-assured song very confident you know and you can only have a song like that if you've got a resume like Robin Bexter yeah. fall back on she's had a very successful career a lot of musical accomplishments in that mm. career all in all I've given this one an 8.5 um, I enjoyed the album throughout. I liked the fact that it had those various styles. It didn't just stay in a particular groove or a particular yeah, rut yeah. throughout the album. I like it when you do when they do it like that. And I think the, that fact shows in the the songs that I enjoyed the most, which was say songs like um, "Girl Like Me," "Love Is Coming," "Here I Am," "On the Bright Side" as well. That's a very very good melodic rock song. And in these eyes, all mm. of those have very different styles to them. Um, but all of them are very good songs so I highly recommend that one that's Love Is Coming by Robin Beck it's out on the 13th of October that's going to be via Frontiers Music SRL the last album we're going to talk about today is Phantom 5 Play To Win Uh, this is a follow on from their self titled debut album It's, it's the brainchild of producer and guitarist Michael Voss who is also the bassist for this album and Klaus Lessman. Yep. Um, on this album, they've got Robert uh, Bobel on guitars as well, and Alex Cruz on drums. Now, the band were originally called Supremacy, but decided to change their name to Phantom Five before the release of the album. Um, now, I've been a fan of Klaus Lessman for quite a long time. I loved Bonfire. Listened to Bonfire many years ago. I thought it was a Bonfire album that I'd not heard when you first put it on. I was like, I really, I've not heard that one before. <laughs> that tells you a lot of what yeah. you need to know about this Very album. Very distinctive. You know, but uh, yeah, I've been a fan of Bonfire for a long time. Been a fan of Klaus mm. Lessman for a long time. In fact, before me and Heather were married, uh, took you to a Bonfire concert, didn't we? Uh, that actually, was at Firefest. It's actually that was my uh, first concert at Firefest. That's where it was recorded. Yeah, but it's actually uh, yeah. on the uh, live official DVD for that. Uh, that yeah. bonfire we're gig. in it we're in it yep the camera was zooming in zooming in on us smooching in the yeah. audience so i was somewhat thinner back then though so you and me both but yeah i really like them now it's not just about class lessman and bonfire michael voss's past and present projects include michael Shem- schenker's temple of rock uh, mad max and casanova axel uh, cruz as played with jaded heart and mad max Robbie Bobel's uh, resume includes Evidence One, which is another band I enjoy particularly, uh, Sanction X, Talon and Frontline. So there's mm. quite a lot of um, influences and styles, and all of those, I would say, show through on this album. Mm. Um, but I would say, if you like any of those bands, then you're going to like Play to Win. I would say especially so if you like Bonfire, because mm. that's the kind of feel that comes through. But it's... Yeah. Um, it really does mm. sound like the album that I've wanted Bonfire to make for the last few years. You know what? He's got one of those, a bit like Bob Cartley. He doesn't age his voice. I yeah. don't think as well. When you first put it on, I thought maybe it was like something really early that I just not heard before. Mm. He's just really got a really kind of fresh, crisp voice that just yeah. never ages. <laughs> and it sounds <laughs> it's great. Really good. Yeah. You know, um, I would say from this album, my, my highlights included uh, the Changing You, Crossfire baptized and read your mind all of them sound like they belong on a particularly good album by the scorpions or bonfire Mm -hmm. um they're full of great riffs killer hooks those choruses will stay in your head 
Um, there are some other songs on there that I think are worth mentioning as well. Do you believe in love, Phantom Child? And... Oh, you're asking me that. <laughs> <laughs> Do you believe in love, Phantom Child, and Reach Out, which is the yep. album closer, and that's uh, another ballad. They're all worth mentioning. Um, Phantom Child in particular allows the rhythm section of the band to come through. There's some really good stuff on there. Uh, Reach Out, as I say, is a lovely ballad to close on. Really allows Lesman's voice to come to the fore, Mm. as does Do You Believe in Love, which is another ballad, but it's more of a power ballad. Yeah, I like that one. Um, Reach Out is more of a softer track to finish with. So, all in all, I'm giving this one a 9 out of 10. I highly recommend this album. Uh, It starts off very strongly, and it's consistently good all the way throughout. I would say that Play to Win is a a German melodic hard rock at its finest. So if you like uh, German melodic hard rock, if you like melodic hard rock at all, if you like the Scorpions, if you like Jaded Heart, if you like Fair Warning, I would say, if you like Bonfire especially, then this is definitely an album that you want to check out. That's Play to Win by Phantom 5. It's out on the 13th of October through Frontiers Music. I don't know who you are, but we're the meddlesome meeples. And it's time to talk about books. A very particular set of books. Hello and welcome to this episode of Tome Talk, where Richard is going to be talking about the book Homo Deus uh, by Yuval Noah Harari. Yep, I've decided to talk a little bit about non-fiction. This is a first for us, isn't it? it because is, so yeah. far we've talked about, in our previous Tome Talks, we've done science fiction, we've done historical fiction, mm? horror, um, we've done fantasy. This is the very first grown-up, mature <laughs> conversation we've had on this show. Well, yeah, it was, it was about time, really, wasn't it? Um, um, I have been quite into reading non-fiction mm. um, the last few years, and one book that I really did enjoy was Sapiens, also by Yuval Noah Harari, and a lot of people might be aware of this. This was quite famous when it was out, and um, basically it is a history book, mm-hmm. And rather than being kind of a history of the world as such, it's more of a history of humans. So it's, it's called a, a brief history of humankind. Mm. And basically, it kind of goes through kind of what we are as From as more people. of an anthropology. Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. But going right from, basically from the agricultural revolution um, up until modern day. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's, it's really fascinating to get an insight into what we are from a scientific point of view mm. and I've heard from some people it can be quite emotional to read because they just realise that they just love being humans <laughs> it's, it's, it's quite nice really but um, yeah you learn quite a lot about about humankind in that book particularly the fact that we are hunter-gatherers basically mm. and although we live very differently now a lot of the way that we, we still think is in a very hunter-gatherer way because that's what our brains um, are meant to be or meant to do so like we like to explore we like to experience new things and we have a tendency to binge as well so I mean that's very fun to gather because mm. if you find um, like a tree full of fruit best thing is to eat as much as you can right yeah. <laughs> you don't know when you're going to find another one no. so um, even though we don't have to do that anymore um, we're still inclined to but we can kind of use a higher brain function <laughs> to realise I'm not going to die if I don't eat this whole so even though we're, we're so. no longer in the bronze age and bronze is brilliant <laughs> yeah. we're still hunter gatherers yeah basically yeah. so um, that's what kind of sapiens was basically and it ends with thinking a bit about the future 
because basically knowing where we came from it helps us to know a little bit about what we can expect in the future obviously it's very difficult mm. to know but it kind of went into the ideas that with things like genetic engineering and modern medicine and everything the future could look very different from the past. We could kind of be coming into another kind of revolution. Well, when we consider so. the technological advances in the last 100 years alone, for That's example, it. Yeah. it would be a very different world. If, say you took somebody from 200 years ago, brought mm. them into into modern society, they yeah. wouldn't recognise most of what we no. have in mm. our lives. Yeah, although we're very similar, uh, well, physiolo- physiologically. Psychologically? No, no, no. Think about the well. physics of our body, really. Yeah, the psychological as well. I that we still have still. Yeah, span and morphologically, from that time. they do. Yeah, but the way we live is very different. Mm. That has a lot to do with not just technology, but also culture. It's like the technology becomes part of the culture, mm. and uh, yeah, changes the way we communicate and things well, like that. Language has changed to um, adapt to that. The way yeah. we communicate nowadays. I mean, if you go back. Uh, to as I say, fifty years ago, mm. um, the the means that people would have to communicate with each other w- compared to nowadays, for example, yeah. the advent of modern uh, mobile phones, texting, email, yeah, things like that, instant messaging. The we have a very different life. Yeah, we do. So basically, we can kind of rely on it to carry on changing mm. quite fast since it already has been. And this is where... It's exponential growth, isn't it? Because yeah. as technology advances, that speeds up over time because you haven't got to work so much on the basics. You can mm. just build on what's already been established. Yeah, yeah, it's collective intelligence mm. rather than individual now. So, yeah, and this is where, as I say, Homo Deus comes in. Now, I was kind of expecting it to start where Sapiens left off and kind of just keep talking about the future. But it actually... He basically goes back through human history again, but from a different point of view, basically um, just filling in a few gaps from this. Mm. So he didn't have to just go on what, like basically what happened in history. It's basically what we learn about different um, ideologies. Mm. And that That's the main thing really in this book. So I th- one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this is when we, I normally talk about sci-fi, like the future. And so when I'm picking a non-fiction book, I want it to be one about Mm. the future as well, uh, just to start off with anyway. Mm. I might talk about other ones um, in other tone talks. But um, so I just think that maybe if people enjoyed Sapiens, but they thought, well, I like history, but I'm not so interested in like speculations Mm. about the future. I think they'd probably be pleasantly surprised by what this is, because it is more of the same. In Hermodeus. Yeah, in Hermodeus. Yeah, it kind of... Um, talks about, well, as I said, the different ideologies, and it's particularly talking about humanism, mm. because that's basically what the main ideology is these days, um, or technically, I mean. And he will tend to talk about it as being a religion, which some people may not like, but the way that Harari tends to talk about religion is being an ideology that will get a lot of people working together mm. all in one go. Um, and like abstract thought that can um, join people together so really in that way um, it's very similar to like a company like corporations and things like that there's a a bit in Sapiens called the legends of Persia which I think is quite a good bit it's talking about like what is a corporation actually like it's not the cars it's making it's not the paperwork it's not the building or the employees but like everyone's got an idea of what it is and it talks about humanism in a very similar way 
Um, and then there being kind of different versions of that, mm. like liberalism and socialism, things like that. So, and then basically just speculating about how that could change with the advance in technology. Mm. Uh, like what is going to replace humanism, if anything will, um, particularly once machines get in on the act of predicting human behaviour, things like that. Um, so is he talking yeah. about humanism from an ideological point of view? Is he looking at it as a as another form of, say, we say democracy, that kind of uh, belief yeah. system, or well, more it, on a religious basis? Or? Well, humanism as in um, it being the thoughts and experiences of humans that are mm. important, um, and then the type of humanism that won out basically mm. um, over the 20th century was uh, liberal democracy mm. so it talks about that as being a type of humanism yeah. but it has kind of socialist elements mm. put into it um, I like the point that you read that um, obviously Karl Marx had a lot of uh, very good ideas and a lot that turned out to not go so well in practice but the thing is the West could read as well they could read writings mm. of Marx and they could incorporate the good ideas that he had. And, well, uh, if you look yeah. at communism in its most basic form, mm. the idea of people working together, sharing Basically. resources, is you know a positive thing. But yeah. if if the last fifty years has taught us anything, it's that in practice communism doesn't work out so well. That's it. Yeah, but it's good to be able to realise that kind mm. of thing, and then just keep things like. Um, like having some kind of sense of equality mm. of services mm. in the country and uh, the industrialis industrialization and like electrifying mm. <laughs> electrifying just uh, running electricity to every town and things like that. I mean, these are kind of ideas that that kind of started there. But um, right, I just want to talk about some of the the basic ideas, um, some of the things that make humans unique as opposed to animals. Mm is our ability to think collectively and one of the ways that we've managed to do that is through uh, writing through being able to you know store knowledge and pass it on to other generations make make our ideas immortal basically mm. in that way and this little section that i liked about um about how much trust people will have in paper <laughs> paperwork basically and it sounds weird but this thing i was just talking to you about before this guy Aristides de Souza Mendes, who I hadn't heard of before, but mm. once I read what he did, I thought, well, he deserves a bit more credit, really. So um, he was working in the Portuguese consulate in France, mm -hmm. and this is during 1940, so obviously there's a lot of upheaval in France at the time. Oh, yeah. They were getting uh, occupied, and as the tanks were kind of it rolling does in. tend to. Yeah, it does. <laughs> yeah. Um, obviously, a lot of the, the Jewish people in France wanted to leave, wanted to like go to south, like Portugal and Spain. But to get the visa, you needed to get approval from the, um, what was it, the Foreign Office, mm. that's it. But obviously there wasn't really time for any of that. So this guy, uh, Mendes, he decided to just disregard that rule and basically throw away his career by just printing the visas anyway. Mm. And he stayed up for like 10 days with him and his team. And um, yeah, just printed like 30,000 visas until they collapsed with exhaustion <laughs> and um, I mean he was recalled to the uh, the foreign office and then fired for it mm. but the the good point is that 
although they fired him for doing that, they did respect the visas that yeah. he printed, and these people did get saved. And I mean, that's just the... one man's job compared to yeah. thousands of lives. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you can appreciate what he did there, but it's just the fact that even though they didn't like what he did, they kind of respected the papers. The the other thing that's in here is um, talking about in China. This is also in 1940. When no, it's not. No. Um, this is during, uh, no, it's not, it's during Mao. Um, they actually uh, really exaggerated how much rice they were producing <laughs> like, on the paper, like all the way up. Like the farmers would exaggerate it, then the Communist bureaucrats would Communist lying? Yeah. No. <laughs> oh, no, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but like everybody just lying a little bit on, mm. each, on each bit of paperwork. And then it, it made them really think that they had way more rice than they actually did. So they thought, oh, I've got enough, we can sell it. So they like, just sold all this rice and they thought they'd eat this non-existent rice <laughs> that nobody had. And uh, so, yeah, on paper it looked like it was all working, but it really wasn't. And um, really, you can't imagine any other creatures having that kind of a problem or things happening. But um, just another thing about humanism here, it's talking about humanist politics, the voter knows best humanist economics the customer is always right this is the kind of thing that um that he's talking about with this this and is how he's explaining the concept yeah, of humanism yeah so and basically what the main the main point ends up being is that at the moment it's like nobody can tell you that you're the way you feel about something is wrong it's kind of what you feel yourself you have the right to vote in whatever way you think you have the right to buy the products that you think are best for you and but in the future, it could be once we understand a little bit more about how the brain works, it is very possible that computers could start understanding us a little bit better than we understand ourselves. Because what we've found again and again is that what we think is happening in our brain isn't really what is actually happening. Like we have an well, experience our perception of something. I mean, you you, mm. you said he explains it by talking about you know no one can tell you that how you feel about something is wrong yeah that's you know, it, yeah i'm sure that you know we can all turn around to for example nazis and say you guys are wrong <laughs> you have yeah your yeah views. you can do yeah <laughs> well th- this is just yeah continue yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not it, it's not inherently correct i think to say that well no uh, it's oversimplified because yeah. i'm just trying to blow through a whole book in a few sentences okay. <laughs> but yeah i mean we've got through this much to get to this point yeah. but yeah um Basically, what is it? Just just little choices that you make in your daily life, <laughs> like say, like you, you do certain things because you think it's going to make you happy, but then say an algorithm in Google has been watching you <laughs> for your whole life and they've worked out that that thing doesn't actually make you happy. It Hang makes on. you happy for a little. No tiny one's bit. checking my Google history, are they? <laughs> Definitely. Oh. Uh, <laughs> no, no, it's just. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But then found out when you do something, uh, um, when you do a different thing, um, you actually remain happier for longer, your blood pressure is better, all, all things like that. And um, talked about it particularly in a, a medical sense. Mm. Like one of the points made is that sometimes Google can tell that there's an epidemic, particularly like a, a flu, like the flu epidemic is starting before the medical profession knows because, because like people are googling certain yeah. search terms on colds and things like that yeah that that's makes it sense. and you just kind of correlate that kind of data and, and he also made the point that if 
we allowed Google to read our emails as well. I mean, I don't think it's really suggesting that has been a good thing, but like be able to read when you've maybe not Googled symptoms, but you've sent a message to work saying like, oh, I've got a headache, but I'll be there anyway. Mm. And it can just kind of make a big database of these symptoms and kind of tell what's happening before it actually See, happens. All that, that says to me that is going to happen is an extension of what's already happening, which is yeah. like the uh, Google search engines and other, other search engines. And our ISPs too can track what we're looking at online yeah, that is it. to market products back to us. Yeah, particularly the, the main one is about... Um, sometimes algorithms can know that a woman's pregnant before she knows because there's certain things that people will buy <laughs> and um there's been times because when people once they are for example pregnant they there is a like an inbuilt desire to within your body uh, your body tells you i need this so you yeah. go and get that yeah those though, kind of things even though you don't necessarily know why and that's where some yeah. of these cravings come in, mm. during pregnancy for example because a woman knows i need this particular nutrient or yeah. a woman's body rather says, I need this particular nutrient. Mm. Um, so they'll have this desire for something that doesn't really, you know, it's not really explained. That's why women eat, re- I mean, I'm talking as a man with two children. Uh, mm. Women can eat really weird foods and, and things like that during pregnancy for that reason. Yeah. yeah, that's it. Yeah, and that's why I really like this point because you can see it already happening. Mm. That's why um, I was quite surprised that the book wasn't more kind of speculating about what kind of crazy things robots and things are going to do in the future. It's more like what is already happening and what is kind of inevitable from that um, because pe- algorithms are only really going to get better. Mm. And even if we don't do it here or in America, like in China, they'll get developed and things like that. So, Well, it's interesting um, that it's speculation based on existing patterns of behaviour. That's it, yeah. Um, it's more near future stuff. That's more believable than I mean. If we can, you can go out and find tons of books predicting the future. Yeah, um, but yeah. it's more interesting than the fact that it's based on an anthropological study of of existing human behaviour and conditions. Yeah, yeah. And when the thing I was trying to say about our brains before is that basically it is a collection of mm. algorithms, and the way our memory works well, is yeah, behaviour is basically learned through life, isn't it, from it experiences is. and yeah. education. But we, what we remember is weird it's like um it's like this peak end um like method of remembering an experience Mm. so like while you're experiencing something it could be absolutely terrible but if it's not so bad towards the end we're going to remember it as being not so bad um because it's it averages it out from the peak towards what it was like at the end yeah and that's that's something that we've we we all do don't we because it's like we 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 tend to sometimes remember like um the first place i lived when i moved out Mm. home there were a lot of negatives. If I sit down and really study it, yeah, yeah, I always remember it fondly. Yeah, that's there, a, a lot of, of bad things happen yeah. in that place. I see a it computer. Always remember it fondly. Yeah, a computer would remind you of all the bad times. <laughs> it would not forget or sugarcoat anything. And uh, yeah, that, that's the kind of that's the kind of thing that we're talking about here. There was also this other little anecdote mentioned in it about uh, Sally Adi, who was a journalist in, well, she is, I assume, a journalist for a New Scientist mm-hmm. and. She kind of tried out this battlefield helmet that okay. um, it's not like because you think of electrodes going into your head, but this mm. is kind of the electrodes are on the outside mm. and then it kind of magnetically um, kind of suppresses certain parts of the brain. So she was on this sniper course mm. where these uh, targets kept coming up, like they were like targets that were like terrorists. So mm. it, was, it was a bit scary, and she was kind of shooting them and. She said, like, for every one she shot, like, three more would turn up. And she was kind of panicking and she kept kind of jamming the rifle, things like that. 
And um, so she kind of felt really stressed by the end of that. But then, then they wired up this helmet. And she said she felt a bit of a tingle and a strange metallic taste in her mouth. But then when she tried it the next time, she was just picking off the targets really coolly. Basically, it just made her more able to concentrate just by shutting down certain parts of the brain mm. that were the, the ones that might over-worry or, or overthink it or panic, things like that. And, yes, yeah, so as 20 of them ran at me brandishing their guns, I calmly line up my rifle, take a moment to breathe deeply and pick off the closest one before tra- tranquilly assessing my next target. In what seems like next to no time, I hear a voice call out, OK, that's it. So she like just shot them all. And I thought this was really interesting because I know certain our brains work in modules. Mm. But it's very interesting that once we find what those modules do, I mean, we already know quite a lot about that. But being able to, with something as non-invasive as a cap to wear, because he then goes on to talk about like if you need to study or something like wear a cap that mm. would just make you not get distracted something like that. I just think that that kind of thing. It would is be very interesting, interesting if you could like wear a cap that would just allow you to focus more. For example, you're taking an exam, you put something on like that that would stop you, um, you know, from being distracted so you can mm. focus on your exam. Or perhaps if you've been through something traumatic, a traumatic experience, you could wear yeah, a cap that would kind of help blot out that parts of your brain. And yeah, it would be interesting. I could just even, I just know that based on human behaviour it's not going to be long before someone makes uh, you know helmets that will make us better killers <laughs> yeah well basically that I mean, one was hu- about that yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean humans have always uh, been uh, good at finding be- better and more brutal ways to slay other yeah. humans yeah they? that's it but that's, that's one of the one of the things you can appreciate and it is brought out here is that with armies becoming more of an elite mm. they can also become smaller mm. and it's just it's nice to know that when there is a war, they don't need thousands upon thousands of people for cannon fodder like they had to in centuries past. Um, the, yeah, the section about war is pretty good in here because um, it's talking about what it's become. It's not much about the glory of the generals anymore. Mm. It's more we're interested in the experience of the individual soldier, which are horrific. So mm. um, that tends to be the way we view war these mm. days. But anyway, that those are the main points I wanted to talk about in this. Obviously, there are a lot more, but I just wanted to really emphasise how well grounded this mm. is in reality because it can just sound like it's going to be crazy when you talk are about you it. Are you recommending this? Definitely. And you're recommending Homodeus, and would you recommend Sapiens first? Yeah, yeah. Or I think would you have to read them in order, or, or could you read each one individually? I think you could read them individually, mm-hmm. actually. But I think this is going to have broader appeal, and it has. Um, so I, I would recommend reading Sapiens first, because Homodeus, although it goes through human history again, it doesn't really tread on its toes. Yeah, and you can just you can enjoy them both, and you do feel like you're learning more through the second mm-hmm. one. Like like we've said, it is very, um, it's done with a very broad view. Of human history there is it goes into details and anecdotes and then it will just blow through a few hundred years <laughs> like just just to kind of get things keep things moving and i think if people are really into history in some ways they might find it a little bit frustrating because it's a bit oversimplified mm. uh, compared to what they're used to but then when you're speaking but it's so not really broadly, about the history itself though it's the analysis of the behavior behind that history that's it yeah, yeah you do feel like you have a much better understanding of the world we live in, the species that we are, and everything like that once you've read it. And Well, I felt like that after Sapiens, and after Homo Deus, I felt 
conflicted because <laughs> I'm kind of looking forward to things in the future and also it can be a little bit worrying as well because I mean some things I haven't spoken about things like AI which obviously mm. it's going to be a real game changer mm. so yeah there's a, reality. yeah a lot of interesting points in there so I do rec- recommend by Yuval Noah Harari both Sapiens and Homodeus and I'm going to also point out so that I can prove conclusively that I can pronounce that name correctly Richard is thoroughly recommending these books by Yuval Noah Harari nice was well, it great and not rehearsed at all that's why we had to make this this long so that Matt could practice <laughs> you know what I, while I was finding this tome talk quite particularly difficult mm. I've had an earworm in my head the whole time an earworm yeah you know that's you know the song Amadeus Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm a deus, I'm a deus. <laughs> Yeah. So, Matt is wearing the hat of infinite completeness, which means the episode is complete. We have come to the end of episode 16. Thank you for joining us. Be sure to send in those uh, thoughts on the Tiny Meeple's Big Talk and the superheroes. Yeah, we definitely need more of that. Yeah. <laughs> There's just not enough discussion about terrible workmates amongst the superhero community. And if you have no opinion, I bet you reckon something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I gotta say it. Nice. <laughs> There's been a lot of Mitchell and Webb quotes going yeah. around, isn't there? I'm, I'm kind of hoping that David Mitchell will hear this and tune in because I think he'd like my hat. Really? I think this hat. I, 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 you really I, want his thoughts? I think this hat would really suit David Mitchell. It might set off one of his rants. I was going to say it in a bad way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what, on soapbox? On the, yeah. yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah, you can talk about your hat. I that. don't mind being the, the subject of one of his rants as long as it's funny. Eww. And it always is. Nice. <laughs> so thanks for watching, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Drop by and say hi to us on social media. And hopefully we'll see you for episode 17. Bye. And stay meddlesome as well. Oh, yeah, oh, yes. that too, yeah. Farewell, Quester, and thanks for joining us. If you wish to avoid the wrath of Grayskarn the Black, then subscribe to our show before you depart. Our fortress is located at meddlesomemeeples.com or join our banners by rendezvousing with us at facebook.com forward slash meddlesomemeeples, instagram.com forward slash the Middlesome Meeples or follow the flight of the mountain bluebird to at Middlesome Meeples. Until next time, Quester, farewell and keep thine axe sharp.